This show is made possible by our Patreon supporters. To get access to our exclusive content and support the show, visit www.patreon.com forward slash EABB podcast. That's www.patreon.com forward slash EABB podcast. Thanks. Welcome to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. I'm Chris Troiano, joined always by Stephen Canistrisi. Hello. This is episode 45, and today we're speaking with Randy Bulla. Randy is the former president of NABBA, that's the North American Brass Band Association. She's also the solo horn with the National Capital Band and the Brass of the Potomac. Today we're speaking about the roles of the Salvation Army Brass Band and the North America Brass Band Association and how they tie into the brass band history of the United States. So we want to thank Randy Bulla for coming on today, and we're really excited to share this episode with you. Yeah, great episode that we were saying kind of contextualizes a lot of things that we had talked about in previous episodes about brass bands and, and British brass bands in America. So we think it's a great one. If you like what you're hearing, you can support the show on Patreon and Teespring. You can also follow us on all social media platforms and definitely subscribe to our YouTube channel as we put out more episodes in season three. So with that, here is our interview with Randy Bulla. Thank you so much, Randy Bulla, for coming on to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. We're super excited and honored to have you on. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. It's a great opportunity to talk about things that we all love. Maybe we can start maybe a little bit on your background, just a little bit. Can you give us a kind of overview of your musical upbringing and how you got to be uh, this figure in the brass band world that you are today? So mine was pretty organic. Uh, My family went to the Salvation Army in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, from the time I was six years old and I could sit still long enough, I held a cornet. And um, I chose cornet actually because my older sister played cornet and I, you know, as little girls are wont to be, I wanted to be just like my older sister. So I chose cornet. Um, and to be fair, my two older sisters also played trombone. So, and my mother. So it was in my blood. <laughs> um, and so I started on cornet and um, I kept auditioning for the youth band at the Salvation Army Corps at Atlanta Temple Corps. And I had to be nine years old to join. And Dr. Richard Holtz was the bandmaster, and he would not let me join until I was nine. So from the time I was six to the time I was nine, I would audition for him every year at the beginning of the school year. And I'd say, no, you know, and I still have the book that had some of the fingerings written in, you know, because I nice. couldn't remember all the fingerings. I played yeah. out of our tune book supplements. And um, so I got started finally when I was nine uh, playing in the Salvation Army Band. And so I worked my way through the youth band and into the senior band at the core. And then, um, then I ended up going to school at Georgia state for trumpet performance. So I was active in my high school band playing trumpet. And then I just kept going. Um, I got a full scholarship for performance for trumpet at Georgia state. 
played in the Georgia Tech marching band. So I had a lot of non-brass band stuff happening in my life, which I think is typical, right? Um, but all the while I was still in the Salvation Army brass band, um, British style brass banding. And uh, I still play at the Salvation Army today. My husband and I and our older son now plays euphonium in our little ensemble. Um, so that's really a part of who we are. Uh, and then as I became a young professional, I got involved with the NABA board. And at first I was a member of the board, just a, a you know, a at-large member. Then I saw a need for the secretary role. They asked if anyone was interested because uh, the then secretary, Susan Hinthorn, was uh, stepping down. And so I said, sure, I'll fill the role, no problem. And then the next year, um, Don Bookout was going to run for vice president. And I thought this would be a good time for me to step up my game a little bit and be a little more involved. And so uh, when it came time at the board meeting, we had some people on the ballot and they said, tell us why you want to be a member of um, NABA board of executive you know, member. And I said, well, because in 20 years, when my kid's old enough to play in a brass band, I want this organization to still be there. And everyone was like, okay. And Don Bookout stepped out. He said, I'm not going to go up against that. That's, that's pretty <laughs> perfect uh, answer. So, um, so then I served as vice president for two terms, and then I was elected as president um, following Steve Allen, Dr. Steve Allen. And I served as president for two terms as well. Very cool. So something that Stephen and I are trying to kind of do with this podcast, you know, we're trying to tell many different stories, <clears throat> try to kind of paint a more complete picture of the history of brass in America and this American brass band tradition and all the different, you know, uh, feeders that kind of all contributed to that and what there is today. Um, we did have the opportunity to, to talk to Dr. Nathan Miller uh, a fair bit about the history of the Salvation Army brass bands, but something in your biography that you kind of just gave us here that I'm interested in. Can you maybe speak a little bit more to the uh, the upbringing culture or the mentoring program that kind of exists within the Salvation Army system? Yeah, I'd love to, actually. Uh, I'm still very passionate about it today and lead a uh, youth band at my own Annapolis Salvation Army. So the Salvation Army starts their um, kids really as soon as you sit still long enough and you can't drop a horn, they will give you one to hold and to start to play. And there are lots of programs that support this at the local church level. And I mentioned earlier, the Salvation Army Corps, it, that's our term for the church itself. So at the church, there's always a youth band um, and not just youth band, right? Because I think everyone knows the importance of um, other musical pieces folding into banding, right? Music theory, um, vocal training, ear training, all of that kind of goes hand in hand. The Salvation Army has um, youth singing company, which is like a youth choir. And so you're, when you have one of them, you're, you're kind of active in all of them. And there are leaders who are in the adult groups that just kind of help train you and they, they seek you out and they, um, because I think part of it is because it's a church as well. Um, they're really looking out for you and you will find all of the kids 
have someone that looks out specifically for them. Now in Georgia, where I grew up, we started, um, when I was about 12 years old, we started the, um, we, they, the powers that be, I was only 12. They started a music conservatory, which was a summer program. So if you think going to a summer camp, like most kids today go to a day camp, like they'll go in the morning and they come home in the afternoon. We went to a camp in Northern Georgia called Camp Grandview, and we were there for seven weeks. <laughs> wow. We showed up and we went home seven weeks later. Yeah, it's like a and, DCI. <laughs> yeah. And away the whole summer. Yeah. <laughs> it was. And um, they figured out that that was too much. So the next year it was six weeks. The next year it was five weeks. And then they've most, uh, and so we were the first division, which is the first kind of state area that had a music conservatory. When you're at the conservatory, you have vocal training every day. You have, you know, so you have choir every day. You have band multiple times a day, two to three times a day. You're playing for an hour. For a kid, that's unimaginable, right? Like, especially today's society, like kids don't want to sit still in a room for that long. Uh, And in fairness, not all of us were rehearsing indoors. Sometimes you were outside in the woods in a big pavilion, you know, because it was camp after all. Um, But then you also had soloist night. So they were training you early on to be comfortable performing on your own. So, and the staff would play an accompaniment um, I'm sure you have heard of the American Instrumental Ensemble series that the Salvation Army puts out. Yep. It, um, so we had that long ago with um, back when Jim Kerno was the editor. Um, those pieces were coming out and it's 16 pieces a year. So it's four different grades of music, one through four, four pieces in each. And one piece in each grade was a solo for B flat or for E flat instruments. So early on, you got comfortable um, performing as a soloist, whether it be vocal, because we have vocal soloists too. And, um, and then on your instrument, and then you had private lessons. I've literally had private lessons since I was nine years old. And as part of the conservatory, it was free. It was included. It's part of what the Salvation Army does. So again, it's that support system. It's not just, here's a band you go play once a week. Um, all through high school, when I was getting ready to audition for college, my divisional music director who ran that conservatory program and all of, he was kind of, pardon the pun, but he was instrumental in all of the local versions of the unions and the youth choruses for all of Georgia. He gave me a private lesson every Saturday for free. Sometimes I'd wash his car to pay for it because my parents didn't have the money to pay for lessons. Um, Sometimes I would go and work with him at another Salvation Army um, to help with their youth band or to help with their um, singing company. So not just training on my instrument, but training in leadership early on. So you just kind of work yourself into um, this. The program kind of leads you down the path of leadership. So you start in the program, then you become like a junior leader. And you're helping some of the younger kids. And next thing you know, you're at the senior level and you're on staff at the music conservatory and you're leading one of the bands and teaching music theory, um, which made it great for when I got to college because I was already comfortable playing. 
Um, I'm great at, you know, just stepping in wherever I was needed, um, which is any, any organization is happy to have someone like that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then how many levels of, of bands are there at each specific site or is it, is it different for each location? That's a great question, Chris. It's actually different um, on each location because it depends on who they have. Um, it depends on how many kids they have in the area. So for instance, you know, I said I grew up in Georgia and Georgia is a division. Um, there's another division um, in the Salvation Army that's um, Arkansas and Oklahoma. So those two states combine. So usually they would have more kids because they're pulling from a much larger area than Georgia. Um, you have Texas, which despite its size is ginormous. They have, they have a lot more music capacity. They have more leaders to lead more bands and choruses. So it really just depends on the geographical location that you're in. Gotcha. That makes sense. That makes sense. And then uh, something that Dr. Miller was talking about in terms of like instrumentation for these bands uh, is similar, goes, goes along with kind of what you were saying. Do, do most bands at their, uh, their adult level, do they try to staff the British competitive numbers or are they, you know, more flexible with going over that or, or staying under that, you know, again, relative to the, to the people that they have available to play kind of thing. For, are you talking about the size or the music itself? Uh, size. So num number of oh. musicians in the ensemble. Yeah. Yeah. That's a little more flexible, right? Because in a church environment, it's inclusivity. So if you have, well, I was going to say, if you have 40 kids, you put them all in one band, but that's, that's just, that's just a bad idea. <laughs> that's just, <laughs> that's just too many. Yeah. Um, so uh, when it comes to the young people, they do try to keep it manageable. Um, and a lot of the leaders in the Salvation Army music program are educators. They are trained educators. So they're not going to put, you know, 40 kids in one room. They're going to split it up 20 and 20, you know, if they can or whatever makes sense for um, level uh, of playing. In the adult bands, however, um, they try to allow anyone that can play at the level of the ensemble to play at the, in, in the ensemble. So you will have the, the band that I grew up in in Atlanta Temple, the senior band, um, which you had to be 15 to be in. And you also had to meet other stipulations of church membership. So you had to be a member of the church um, and actively participating that way to join that band. And at 15, I joined a band and I was on second cornet because you had to pay your dues. <laughs> Didn't matter how you played, you were going to come in and sit on second chair, second cornet. Um, but there may have been three second cornets and there may have been, it was a much larger ensemble than a standard 29 member band plus percussion. Yeah, yeah I gotcha. Definitely larger. Six tubas. <laughs> A little too many, but yeah. <laughs> A little.
Is there any crossover between the Salvation Army and NABA? Or do they kind of exist in their own spheres and, and kind of do their own thing? Um, I think, I mean, that's a, that's a tough question. Is there linkage? Absolutely. I don't think that NABA would be where it is today if it didn't include the history of the Salvation Army brass banding in America. Hmm. Because um, that's a multifaceted question, really. Hmm. The early the early adoption of brass banding in America was the Salvation Army bands, not competition level. And there's actually very specific rules for NAVA that preclude a, or they did, unless things have changed. There was a rule that Salvation Army bands could not compete as a Salvation Army band. Hmm. There's also in the Salvation Army articles bands do not compete because the mission of a Salvation Army band as a church music organization is not competition. It's strictly um, for bringing others to Christ. That is our mission as a Salvation Army band. We play music that evokes spirituality, that um, draws heavily on the words of the songs that are represented in the tunes in the pieces. So it's, so in that sense, it's very separate. But if you look at the history of band in America, it relied very heavily on the Salvation Army for that sound, right? And um, we may touch on this later, but the sound is very different from a brass band versus a community band or a concert band. Even though you have some of the same instruments, it's a very different sound. The literature is another instance where NABA really relied on Salvation Army pieces. If you look at the, um, the history of the NABA contest music, you will see a lot of music published by the Salvation Army. And those pieces, while you walk into a Salvation Army um, church on a Sunday morning, you're not gonna hear these big festival pieces. Because again, there are rules in the Salvation Army about when that music is appropriate. It's appropriate for a festival. It's not appropriate for holiness meeting on a Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. So you won't hear those big pieces, um, but they're definitely intertwined. It's like saying, can the body exist without a nervous system? Yeah. Well, yeah, but it's, it's an incomplete body. Mm -hmm. So I do think the two are, um, yeah, intertwined at a, at a foundational level. Mm-hmm. And when, when you're speaking to the Salvation Army as being this major contributing factor to the American band scene, are, are you talking more of like the, uh, the 20th century type of band scene? Because I was under the impression that brass bands form, began forming you know, in Europe as well as the United States you know, early to mid-19th century, like 1830s, and then uh, that the Salvation Army came to the United States much later, like the 1880s. Yes. Yeah. And for the correct time frame, there's a great um, two-volume series, uh, two-volume book set by Dr. Ronald Holtz, who talks about the history of the Salvation Army banding. It would have the specific, <laughs> he'll probably tell you in that book which day it happened, because <laughs> that's who he is. Yeah. Great record keeping from um, the Salvation Army, though, right? <laughs> yeah. 
uh, and from the Holtzes. Yeah. Uh, so Dr. Ronald Holtz was teaching at Asbury, you know, for years and years. He recently retired. It was his brother, Dr. Richard Holtz, that wouldn't let me join the youth band until I was nine. Not that I hold a grudge because I don't. <laughs> I love him. But <laughs> I often question him as a young adult because I ended up working for him in the music department at the Salvation Army in Atlanta. Um, as a young adult, and I, I would question him often. You know, I could have had three more years of experience here. Yeah. You really helped me back. Yeah. <laughs> as for the timing, so the Savage Army bands did start, that was probably around the same time as the Herbert L. Clark cornet stuff was happening. While the, some of the instruments were um, available, cornets and trumpets were happening at the same time. Um, it was really uh, the... 1980 was um, when Dr. J. Perry Watson kind of published this thing called a brass band bridge, right? And that was, um, he had formed a, and it was the few years, probably five years leading up to that, you know, a couple of years before that, he had just gotten bitten by the bug, the brass band bug, um, which we all know too well. Um, he had formed a British style brass band at North Carolina State University. He formed a lending library, which at the time was unheard of, right? So you could, you could, uh, well, write in letters. So that kind of started this movement, right? And at the beginning of this, what we now think of as the NABA movement, it was a lot of interaction with, um, with Perry Watson and this community brass band, when they got together, when they had workshops, they would bring in Salvation Army bands. So they would have the New York staff band come in as the guest. Um, again, as I kind of hinted at earlier, it was about the sound of brass band, right? So you can give a bunch of trumpet players cornets, but they're not going to sound like a British brass band cornet section True. until they hear it, right? And you have to hear it and you have to, to change the way you're playing an instrument. You know, you have to change the way you play a tenor horn versus a French horn. And that's kind of, we usually get our horn players from the French horn side or someone that played cornet. And, you know, um, so it really came on the heels of Perry Watson getting really interested he was the one flying over to England. He was going to contests. He was bringing back information. You have to think in the 80s, right? We didn't have the internet. We didn't have a CD shop. You know, it was LPs, it's still records. And it wasn't just you go into a record store and you happen across a Grimethorpe LP. It wasn't happening. Yeah. They had to be specifically imported. So you had to know about it to get more of it. Mm. And Perry Watson was that guy. He made that happen. He put the connections together. So he started the Brass Band Bridge in 1980. And in 1983, they had the first NABA championship. And all along the way, he was getting people excited about Brass Band and um, going into workshops where bands would play for each other, um, kind of those pre-NABA events, really, and bringing in the New York staff band, when everybody's together, if it was the local North Carolina State University band, he would bring in a local Salvation Army church band, a core band, 
and have them play with and for the the community band. So that's where it started to meld community and Salvation Army. And you'll see, I don't know of any North American brass band that doesn't have a Salvationist in it. I think that's it. And if they're not active in the Salvation Army, they have at one point been in the Salvation Army. Yeah, yeah. Because once you're in a brass band, especially if if you're not, if you don't have like at our Salvation Army Corps in Annapolis, we have a five member band. Three of us have the last name Bola. <laughs> so if we're not, it's just not a, you know, I'm playing cornet in that band. My son plays euphonium and Steve plays um, trombone. Now our son, Robert has actually, this is a little bit of a tangent and I'm really good with rabbit trails. So nice. you can always bring me back. <laughs> it's all good. Our son, Robert, just graduated from high school and he went to a performing arts high school for euphonium. Mm -hmm. nice. His teacher at the high school in Annapolis was a graduate of James Madison University where Dr. Kevin Stees, or sorry, Professor Kevin Stees yeah. uh, has a very strong brass band program. Um, in fact, when I was president of NABA, when I, one of the years that I gave a presidential, um, the president's award, I gave a joint award to JMU School of Music and to Kevin Stees for the work that they had done promoting brass band as curriculum and really teaching the difference. And it's a whole genre that they are sending people out into the world now and they're music teachers. And guess what they're doing? They're starting brass bands yeah. because yeah. it was cool and it's different and it gets kids excited and they want to practice and they'll spend extra time out of their day in another band rehearsal right. outside of high school or college even. Yeah. Yeah. So, so his teacher showed up and I didn't know him, but I showed up with a NABA shirt on one time and he showed up with a JMU shirt on right. at this, you know, marching band thing. And I was like, Oh, so you went to, and his name is Paul Dombowski. He's a great guy. And uh, I said, so you went to JMU. Do you know, uh, you must know Kevin Stees. And he immediately goes, oh, I know Professor Stees. Like this is a, you know, an adult who's been a professor himself for like 20 years, but he still refers to him as Professor Stees. Um, but yeah, he was a tuba player and played euphonium. And so he really took a shine to our kid. And he, um, yeah, so... Robert just graduated from high school and he has actually always played in the band with us. He started when he was in sixth grade um, and we still only had probably seven or eight people as, you know, people come and go mm -hmm. and he's played every Sunday and he goes to the music camps in the summer. This year he was on staff uh, with the, what we call the Potomac division, which is um, Maryland, West Virginia, Northern Virginia, and, um, well, in all of Virginia and DC. And so he was on staff um, as a counselor and kind of going through the same path that his father and I both did growing up in the Salvation Army programs where we were in the program, then we were on staff, then we were leaders. And then, you know, yeah. so it's, uh, it's really interesting how that wove through NABA and my own son's high school. It's like, there's someone everywhere that yeah, has been yeah, touched sure. by brass band. If you're in a music setting at all, surely they've heard of 
brass band in Napa. Yeah, we just had uh, Kevin Stees come up and conduct the brass band that I play in here, which is brand new. I'm like a, a, I'm fresh to the, uh, you know, British style brass band stuff um, with the brass band in Northern Virginia that was started. We we had a couple like holiday concerts before COVID, and then COVID happened, and now we're we're back rehearsing again. But um, yeah, Kevin Sees came up and conducted our rehearsal on Thursday, and it was fantastic. That was the second time I've uh, worked with him and he's great I mean it was all like what you were saying and maybe we can get into this a little bit later with like sound concept and how to think of you know the the British brass band sound as a whole and how you fit into it um, and just some some slight differences than you know what I as a euphonium player normally do you know sitting in a <laughs> concert band uh, you know and it's it's good to stretch the legs and challenge challenge myself a little bit with that stuff um, yeah, yeah, so he's great. Can't, can't say enough some... good things about him. Yeah. Yeah. I think we share some uh, membership with you, don't we, from Brass the Potomac? I'm sure we do. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think a couple of our guys play in that band as well. Yeah. It's good. It's a good group. We're, we're getting there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It just goes to show you what people are willing to do to play in a brass band, right? right. So you have all these people who are professional musicians and military bands and not only military bands in the Washington DC area, right? They're mm -hmm. in the premier military bands and they still take time out of their week to play in another rehearsal. Yeah, It just tells you it's different enough. It's special enough to get those people to come out and play another night of the week. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Something that you were saying that in 1980, that kind of British sound concept was starting to be introduced into the States and the excitement was kind of starting to grow, uh, in 1980, what, what was the Salvation Army's sound concept <laughs> up until that point? Also, did they have the British sound and they were just kind of not seen kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. Well, they weren't really community, right? They were only in their local community, people in you know, Northern Georgia didn't necessarily know about a group from Southern Georgia um, because there was no awareness for that to happen. There was no community that was bringing it all together. Um, what Perry Watson did was kind of take the community band infrastructure and marry it with British style brass banding. So it was really about the infrastructure of community bands, right? Community bands have been around for a long time. Um, and the Salvation Army bands have been around for a long time. Now, a lot of the Salvation Army band folks already had the sound. And that was kind of your question, Chris, was where did the did Salvation Army bands already have the sound? A lot of times, yes, because they didn't start by playing the trumpet and switching to cornet or start by playing um, a, you know, a tuba, a C tuba, and then switching to a B flat. Um, and it's very different role. A lot of guys um, in the low brass sections, especially love brass banding, right? Because it's not the Oompa land. Yeah. <laughs> you actually, you have substantial music to play um, on instruments that don't always get that kind of substantial, um, you know, opportunities right. in concert bands or certainly orchestra. I mean, how many euphonium players get to play in an orchestra? Yeah. <laughs> Unless they're, yeah. Unless they're doubling on something else, <laughs> you don't get to play. Yeah. Um, so, and, you know, it's, it's interesting because with the Salvation Army tradition of brass banding came those early recordings from Grimethorpe or uh, Black Dyke, you know, coming over 
and and so they would hear the sound. So as you know, also with the Salvation Army work, they were sending people from the UK to establish the work. So a lot of times you'd find people from the UK and Canada, especially. Um, we often overlook Canada, but it is part of North America. Mm-hmm. We, you know, and it's a very important part of the brass band tradition because a lot of the folks in Canada learned directly from the UK, and then that spread through Canada and down into some of the northern um, U.S. states. You know, so um, that. British style brass band. And you'll actually hear a difference today in um, British brass band and American brass band. And I don't know if you've experienced this yet, but it's very different. If you listen to Fountain City, for instance, British style brass band, they have a a very distinct sound that is not the British vibrato the tone is a little bit darker on the cornets than it was in the British style brass banding. Uh, part of it could be the instruments that we use now are just different. They're made differently. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we were, we've been talking about it for years. You can start to hear the impact of American and um, traditional brass instruction on British style brass banding. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I think that's uh, the orchestral loud mm-hmm. brass kind of stuff that kind of impact. Right. And you'll see that in the writing as well, right? The writing is evolving as well. Mm. So those tough higher championship pieces, um, sometimes it's hard for the sake of being hard. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's the, you're, it's really literally there just to challenge every seat in the band. Now, not all of them make the pretty arch that we expect from a a big championship test piece, right? It's, Mm -hmm. yes, it's hard for the sake of being hard. It's challenging. It's amazing technical writing. And then it's just missing something, (laughs) you know, sometimes it's just missing that element of where brass banding came from, Mm -hmm. you know, which is those melodies, those beautiful the beautiful sonorous sounds of the instruments were not meant to be trumpets. Mm-hmm. If you want the brass ensemble, you go to that class. If you want brass band, you go to a different class. And that's one of those differences between, um, you know, the British brass band sections, very different from uh, the traditional American brass sections, right? Cornet sections in America have a hard time blending as a section. Mm -hmm. And why is that? It's the way they're taught. They're soloists. Trumpet players are all soloists. That's what we're taught in school. I know I was one of them, (laughs) you know, but at the same time, I had brass band happening with my youth band and the senior band at the same time. And then the conservatory. So I had that happening, which I think gave me the, the benefit of both styles so I could stand up and play a solo with the brass band where the kids who were just in the brass band weren't quite that confident yet because I also had the trumpet side and I was learning, you know, you had a solo and you kind of in the, in school, you know, you 
you wanted that solo. That was kind of, you know, you auditioned, you practiced for it and you wanted that solo. Whereas in the Salvation Army band, you're a section and you're listening all the way down the road. There's five solo cornets. You are trying to hear every person in your section at any time, right? So um, it's very different in that way that the sound um, kind of shifts back and forth um, with today's music that's being written. And then if you put up something like, you know, the Holy War, which still very technically challenging music or, you know, one of the championship pieces that we've had over the last few years, that's just loud, high, louder, <laughs> higher, technical tongues flapping out the end of your bell still both i mean amazing pieces right but you can tell where we're where we have evolved yeah so is that just speaking from a nava point of view or is that globally like is that happening in the uk also it's happening in the uk as well um you know i mentioned when perry watson was doing his foundation laying um he was bringing things over. He was going over physically traveling to the UK and coming back with stuff, um, whether it be music, whether it be recordings, whether it be concepts and ideas for how to organize, how to spread the word. Today, we definitely, I mean, all you have to do is think it and somebody else has already thought it and it's on the internet, right? <laughs> so you can hear what what it sounds like with different things. You can see the different ways bands set up. You know, there's always the, where does the flugel go question? Do they go next to the horns? Do they go next to the piano? Um, but you can see how different bands are doing things and how they're playing, how they're getting the sound. Does the soprano player turn in when he goes up high and loud just so he doesn't stick out? Or is he pointing out because he wants to stick out or, or she for that matter? Um, so it's really interesting that we have so much information at our fingertips. I think now we're all starting to move in the same direction at the same time. We're not separated by continent anymore because we're all this global community of brass bands and everybody knows what everybody else is doing. People, um, I know during the, um, the COVID shutdown, I was still playing with the National Capital Band. We rehearsed every week. September through May yeah. during the COVID shutdown because we had um, Dr. Steve Kellner is our conductor and we rehearsed at the Salvation Army in Alexandria, Virginia, and they had a big area, big open area, and we were spaced out six feet front to back to side. We had our own uh, paper towels in front of us for emptying the condensation from our horns and mm -hmm. only we were to touch our paper towel. Uh, we wore masks when we weren't playing. Uh, we had bell covers if you chose to use it. Um, there, but so Dr. Kellner, as well as um, one of the other members of our band worked for Johns Hopkins University, you know, so they had information that was able to like medical documented, they were on the forefront of the information that was coming in for COVID and playing a brass instrument. So because we were rehearsing and nobody else was, we started live streaming our rehearsals. You get all the bad notes and everything, right? It's a rehearsal, but people could see again, and this goes a little past even the music and the, you know, what we were 
what we were trying to do as a band, it let people know how to set up for a rehearsal, you know, during COVID, um, how far they needed to be apart, what happened to the sound of the band when you did it that way, because it wasn't easy. And I'm sure, I'm, I mean, I'm absolutely certain we did not make as much progress in the year as we would have if we were sitting close together, right? Mm -hmm. So because we have the internet, everybody was in that rehearsal with us. We had hundreds of people in our live rehearsals. It's like, it's just a rehearsal, guys. But, you know, but nobody else was doing it. So they mm -hmm. were thrilled to be a part of a rehearsal. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I think that's what happens with where we're evolving musically, where we're evolving um, stylistically. Uh, it's, it's all kind of happening at the same time. Now, there's still a very distinct difference between British brass banding in America and North America because of our just the sound is different. The vibrato is different. We don't have as much history as those UK bands, but it's interesting to note how similar we are because we all started as community bands, right? The, yeah. the uh, British brass bands were community bands and that's the reason all the music was written in treble clef is so that anyone could pick up a horn and play it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's fascinating. You know, orchestras weren't that way. You know, how many, as a trumpet player, I had to learn how to transpose because the parts were in A and E flat and F and G and yeah. B flat, you know, C, D, all the alphabet, you know? And so you just, there wasn't a standard way of writing. I think brass band was the first standard that came out. Everything was this way, except, you know, of course, bass trombone. Right. They're always yeah. special. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That, uh, that whole sound concept thing is something that I've been thinking a lot about recently. Um, and you're, you're totally right. I mean, I, I feel like, especially when we're talking about vibrato, like if you think of it from a vocal perspective, vibrato is not something that a vocalist puts into their sound. It's a byproduct of everything in their body working. And I only know this because my fiance is a, is a soprano, but uh, it's a vibrato for a vocalist is like, it's an innate quality of their sound that comes as a product of everything working correctly and i feel like at least in my experience in like brass instruction in america vibrato is something you add to the sound later but i always think like yep. in the in the british tradition brass playing or vibrato and brass playing is follows much more closely the the vocal thing where it's kind of an innate quality of the sound and it's a it's a characteristic of the sound that's there almost from the start and that's why like at least when i listen to like a recording of a british brass band from not america that sound it just shimmers in a way that's so different from what i experienced playing in a band and the brass bands that i've heard in the united states it's really really interesting how that evolves and you can you can even kind of hear that like in the in the premier military bands like if you listen to a recording of the marine band from 80 70 you know 50 years ago the sound is so much different you know and the style they play is so much different than what they play now and I don't think one's better, you know, but it's just different and it's interesting how it changes over time and how it's influenced by a whole bunch of things. So that's just, 
my random two cents about the <laughs> the sound quality <laughs> talk yeah but, but you know it's you're right Stephen. It, it's and i think it goes back again to listening right mm-hmm. when you sing it's what you've been listening to if you hear a child singing they don't have that vibrato yet their instrument hasn't developed and they're not listening for musicality right they hum along the little tunes that their parents sing to them or you know and then as they get older they sing the stuff on the radio but for a a kid picking up a brass instrument in the uk for instance the person that's telling them how to play has that vibrato Mm -hmm. it's the only thing they know Mm -hmm. right yeah so they don't know to not have vibrato because that's what you know Maggie is teaching me on cornet and that's what her cornet sounds like. So I'm mimicking the sound. And in America, I think it was just in the last two years that my son learned to put vibrato on held notes on the euphonium. Mm-hmm. And it was like, and it was mainly because he wasn't, he hadn't started listening to recording yet and hearing because as soon as he, so he's been taking lessons with Dr. Kellner, which is not bad. Yeah. You could do <laughs> okay, a lot worse there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so he's been studying with him. Great information. but And so as soon as he introduced the concept to our son, it was, he picked it up immediately because he could hear it. Mm-hmm. And then it's like just that translation from your ear to your lip or to your diaphragm, however he does his vibrato, it, it just, it, like the very next lesson, it was starting to happen. I was like, oh, when I was a kid and I was 15 and someone taught me how, taught me how to use vibrato on a cornet, um, it involved moving my horn. It was the, <laughs> yeah. you know, it was the move your hand a little bit and it makes the vibrato sound. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that was the way I learned, so. Um, it worked for a long time, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's what you hear. I think it really just comes back to what you hear. Mm-hmm. So are you guys saying that then in, yeah. in the, the British upbringing realm of brass education, you guys are saying that they incorporate vibrato into their sounds at a younger age, like earlier on in their development or. I think so. Yeah, I think so. Because, um, I mean, obviously it comes down to the, that person's unique environment. But um, if you have leaders who were taught the same way, right, you keep passing on the same information the same way you got it. And so you have the people who were raised in Salvation Army bands and brass bands who become leaders and start teaching. That's what they're teaching. You know, I had a teacher in high school who was classically trained, but he also grew up in the Salvation Army in Texas. Um, But he went to Boston, I think he was at Boston University um, for trumpet performance. And so he had a very different sound than everybody else in the brass band. And that's when I really noticed, and I had um, a mentor who would say to me, you know, you can make a trumpet sound more like a cornet than anyone I know. <laughs> because it, it, yes, it's instrument I'm holding, but the sound that was coming out was still 
cornet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Which I think is is interesting because you get you get a melody when you're playing a trumpet and you see a melody. For me, it just snaps into my. I mean, this is you know this is what I do. This I play. I'm going to play it, and it's more like a cornet sound. It's a softer, sweeter sound. Um, now that same mentor also said I could make a cornet sound more like a trumpet than anyone he'd ever heard. <laughs> so, but and it's like that kind of music. Like if you see the the big test piece, it's difficult because I mean this was when I was 15, 16 years old. It's difficult to control which sound you're using, right? If you're not practicing it that way, yeah. if you're not practicing the trumpet excerpts differently than your cornet excerpts you have to play them differently and you have to know that sound and it's hard to switch back and forth we think oh it's just i'll just pick up a different instrument and it'll be fine it's not think of think of a french horn player that picks up a tenor horn for the first time yeah and they they sound like a french horn player and they're Mm -hmm. struggling in that big mouthpiece that we force them to play on (laughs) and that that rehearsal on thursday i forget what piece we were working on but it's a it's a, a longer, you know, very standard British uh, brass band piece. It's been around in the repertoire for a while. And uh, Kevin Stees at the beginning was like, now remember everyone, you know, repino all the way down to the euphoniums need to use vibrato all the time. And so we started out and it was great. And then like the further we got into this, you know, 15 minute long piece, it just, everything <laughs> evened out. And by the end, we just, we sounded like, the Chicago Symphony brass section, just straight, loud, broad. And he was like, yeah, all the notes were there, but uh, the style, as we went on, it it went away quick. (laughs) Yeah, because if it's not who you are inside, you have to keep thinking about it. And it's hard to think about that as well as the music itself, technically, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and, And I think that's one of the things that we... I think that's one of the things that really still sets American brass bands apart yeah. is the style. And it's just, my husband would say over and over, it's who you listen to, yeah. you know, right. it's who you listen to. Yeah. Yeah. Are you listening to the British brass bands? Because that's the sound you'll hear. And then that's the sound you're going to make. Mm-hmm. But if you're not listening to it. And I mean, now, now that our son is older, we've started having that same conversation with him. Yeah. Like, nice. so who are you listening to? Yeah. And uh, we're hoping it's some of the greats, and we know some of them. <laughs> so yeah, we have the recordings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just like, it's like we keep leaving little gifts at his uh, door, you know, it's his bedroom door. <laughs> Here's another CD. Here's another CD. Yeah, Here, awesome. try this one. You know, yeah, this is yeah. what we want you to sound like. This is great. Yeah. And the, the same can be said for early American brass bands, also. I know, you know, the, the repertoire for early American brass bands, you know, is you know, difficulty wise, nothing compared to what, uh, contemporary American and British brass bands are doing. Uh, the E flat soprano cornet does, you know, have the more difficult parts, but again, it's not, you know, playing anything like is in, uh, the repertoire for contemporary bands today, but in terms of the sound concept and switching between instruments, you know, trumpet versus cornet versus, a cornet that's 150 years old with the bell pointing behind you or different, different valve configurations. You know, a lot of times, you know, players will pick up these instruments and blow the crap out of them because they're used to playing, you know, the modern instrument, but there's a certain, 
even though it's a cornet or a baritone, you know, it's, you got to treat it like a different instrument and learn to, to play it as its own thing. Just like you're switching between a cornet or a trumpet like that. In the U S the first baritone that I heard that was a real baritone sound was coming from Fountain city and it was Helen. Um, she's amazing. And euphonium and baritone is very different. They're very different beasts to tackle. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's who you listen to. You know, you're not trying to play a baritone like a euphonium. Definitely. It's a different instrument, yeah. you know, and when played well, amazing. Yeah, there is really no connection with DCI. <laughs> um, so they use a lot of brass band music with DCI. Um, they transcribe those pieces. There's, uh, no big connection. There's, there's not even a huge link. Like the Salvation Army is linked with brass band in America, DCI, not so much. I mean, very different instruments, um, different approach, different style, different mission, if you will. Mm-hmm. So I just want to follow up on that. Sure. The, uh, the connection that I like to make sometimes with DCI and just British brass bands, though, in general, is kind of how DCI is kind of the the all brass competitive American, you know, kind of ensemble. You know, granted, now there's American British brass bands here kind of thing, too. But in a way, DCI kind of served as that uh, that mirror for a time, I, I guess, before 1980, <laughs> before that came here. Uh, was yeah. that brass competitive scene here in the U.S.? yes. Yeah, and that was the only brass competitive scene, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. but yeah, still very different in approach. But I think they even find the opportunity to use brass band music because it's written for all brass, which yeah. you know, it is their genre as well. Yeah. All brass. Yeah, nice and easy for them to steal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you said that. <laughs> yeah, we'll say it. You don't have to. We'll, we'll... <laughs> We'll take that one. Yeah. But you know, in fairness, the Salvation Army has stolen a lot of music for transcriptions as well. Mm -hmm. Um, In high school, I was playing really big orchestral pieces because they had been transcribed for brass band, not because I had a high school that had an orchestra, because we didn't, or a concert band that could play those pieces, but they were being transcribed for. Savage Army Brass Band and published in our publications as transcriptions. Hmm. That's really where I got a lot of exposure to traditional music that I wouldn't have known. And, you know, when I got to college, I really had um, an advantage because, well, for a couple of reasons, I had an advantage because I knew the pieces, right? Hmm. Maybe not the orchestral sound of those pieces. I still had to develop that part of my trumpet um, repertoire. But I also could sight read like nobody's business because I grew up playing clarinet parts on the cornet, right? And so those hard pieces, when they were transcribed, the flutes and the clarinets and the oboes were being put in the cornet section. So we were all over the place and not just the orchestral trumpet player, right? We had a lot more um, technical breadth when it came to sight reading. And I think... Salvation Army kids still, um, or, you know, kids in a youth brass band program 
are still going to be your better sight readers. Yeah, makes sense. And Definitely. it's like we had the bigger pieces, but also when you're playing every Sunday at church, you're sight reading the tunes every week. You're not singing the same four hymns every Sunday. So you have to get used to sight reading and, you know, learning the roadmaps and repeats and key signatures, changes and all that. And you have to process it very fast. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's interesting when I would go to a school band rehearsal at our kids' schools, you know, and sometimes um, Steve and I would go and sit in with the band or, you know, help do a sectional or something. And you would like hear kids just stepping all over themselves. And it's like, this is, it hasn't even changed key yet. You know, <laughs> what, you know? And so, you know, we talk to our son and say, so, you know, is it always like that? He goes, yeah, it takes three or four rehearsals for them to even get through it because nobody can sight read. Yeah. It's like, huh, that's interesting. And it's not something kids practice either, right? You, you don't practice, you don't play. Like you can't expect to play high notes if you don't practice high notes. You can't play low notes if you don't practice playing low notes and, you know, articulation and that stuff. You don't practice sight reading. You're not going to be good at sight reading. Uh Just one more of those fundamental things and sight reading, not the easy stuff. You know, like when you're working up an audition packet, you always start at the beginning. (laughs) The first four things are going to be great. Starting with number five, that you don't get that far, you know, you spend all the woodshed time on one through four. So you have to, um, if you're going to get better, you have to practice things you don't know. Definitely. Yeah. I feel like some of my students practice their sight reading weekly with me in a lesson. <laughs> As the lesson, this is yeah. the lesson, sight yeah. reading. Yeah. Oh, this was not the purpose of today's lesson, yeah. but this is what we're learning today. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I was guilty of that too in high school every now and again though. Oh, we all did, <laughs> but not every rehearsal, no, not every no. lesson. Exactly. and I guess maybe you could weave this in somehow was um, my involvement with the National Capital Band. Um, I didn't speak much about that, but it really, there have been, um, for our family, there's been um, several generations play in the National Capital Band. So when Steve, my husband Steve was conducting, his father played in the band, his sister, his brother-in-law played in the band, um, then I played in the band and now our son is playing in the band. So it's, um, you know, three generations now of Bola family has played in the national cap band. And, um, and I think it's important that for us, it's important because it's not, you know, you don't want to identify as, oh, I play in this band, you know, I want to be, you know, the player but I'm a member of this band, but it goes back to that fellowship, right? The camaraderie, the, the community. And I think that's, um, it's really important to know that the national capital band is still going, you know, and it's one of the longest standing brass bands in America for the Salvation Army. 
which, um, you know, other than a, a small church band. Um, and so they've put out so many recordings over the years. They've done international tours. You know, they're really taking brass band an American brass band to the world. So I think it's a really um, unique opportunity. Um, if people haven't seen it, there's definitely a Facebook um, page for the National Capital Band, uh, and they regularly record their uh, rehearsals and performances. Um, we did a lot of live streaming events over Christmas holidays and things. So that'll be uh, just something that, that I think is um, cool to put out there. Andy, this has been a great conversation. We really thank you uh, for taking the time to sit down and chat with us about uh, some some holes we had in our uh, brass history in America discussion that we've been running here for now two and a half, close to three seasons. So thank you so much for for sitting down with us. Um, where can people go if they want to find out more about you know, the Salvation Army, uh, NABA, or we didn't talk about it that much, but your solo horn with the um, Grass of the Potomac uh, and all that stuff. Where can people go if they want to learn more about all that? Well, I'll say first, thank you for having me. It's been really great to um, talk about something that I love so much, uh, both NABA and my involvement and upbringing in the Salvation Army and what that means to me um, and the, the way those two come so closely together, um, which kind of just kind of embodies who I am. Uh, so thank you for allowing and indulging me uh, to talk about those passionate things for me. Yeah. Um, to get more information, there's a lot of different websites um, that you can go to. We do have uh, for Brass of the Potomac, uh, we have a website, it's brassofthepotomac.com. And we did put out uh, Firestorm last year, uh, which was great. Um, and we uh, were in the running for several awards in the UK. We got an, an offer or I guess an invitation to come to a, uh, a festival next year in 2022 um, in, I think it's in Amsterdam. And we're hoping that we can get the band on board to do that with Brass the Potomac um, because of the recognition for firestorms. If you haven't heard that um, or sought it out yet, do take the time, it's a great recording. Um, for Salvation Army stuff, you can uh, find, well, there's, I guess really what you would want to do is for your local area, you'd want to find out who the Salvation Army music director is. So the term is the divisional music director. Um, and you can put in the state that you're in and, um, you know, in the U.S. anyway. Uh, and, and they do have those positions throughout the U.S. and Canada. So um, music directors and there's lots of information. People can absolutely contact me if they want more information. Uh, my email address is rbulla.naba at gmail.com. 
Um, so if there's anything you want to know, uh, or if you want more information, I'm happy to help you find it. Uh, but I would, I would end with just one thought, and that is find a band to play in. Just find a band. Um, if it's a Salvation Army band, um, they'll want you to come to church. So know that ahead of time. <laughs> Salvation Army is a church first and foremost. Music is our mission uh, for the band. The mission of, of the Salvation Army band is to bring people to church. So uh, know that, but they will have some great music and great people. If it's a community band that you find that's a brass band, just tell them, hey, I, I play this instrument or you know, a lot of people say I played in high school and, you know, I'd like to get back into it. Do it in a brass band. Don't waste your time with all the woodwinds. Just come to the brass band um, and, and just get back into it because music is a way of not just expressing yourself, but communicating with others. And it's a camaraderie that cannot be beat. We can go anywhere in the world. And if we're in a brass band, you've got a community, whether you speak their language or not. Um, so use it. It's out there. And uh, if anyone needs any information, I'm happy to help. Thank you again so much to Randy Bullock for coming on to the Early American Brass Band podcast. It was awesome getting to fill in those gaps of the brass band history in America. Uh, so thank you for helping us with that and for taking the time to speak with us. Yeah, and you can find show notes for this episode with links to things that we mentioned uh, on our website. That's eabbpodcast.com. And if you're new to the show, we have a whole bunch of resources up there. So we do hope you'll check that out, poke around a little bit, uh, and get interested in some things uh, that we have up on the website. This episode's featured album is the 2020 album put out by the Brass of the Potomac titled Firestorm, the music of Stephen Bulla. Stephen Bulla is Randy Bulla's husband and the conductor of the Brass of the Potomac. This album features uh, members from the band as well as Joe Alessi. So be sure to check out the album Firestorm on our show notes. Be sure to purchase an album from their website and this will all be linked in our show notes and YouTube description. Music for this episode was provided by the Brass of the Potomac as well as the 8th Green Machine Regiment Band from George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. A special thank you to our patrons over on Patreon. The show would not be possible without their support, and if you would like to support the show, please head on over to Patreon and consider becoming a supporter of the Early American Brass Band Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next one.